have won for us eternal life. You have brought immortality to light in him. I pray that you would keep us unashamed of this gospel proclamation, that you'd allow us to, to serve those you place into our lives and to seek to serve you in all that we do. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. So, why 2 Timothy, or why at least do I find 2 Timothy such an interesting letter? It is widely regarded, and I am in full agreement with this, that this is the last letter Paul wrote. Uh, probably in the very same year that he was executed, which is approximated to be about 68 A.D., And when you start thinking about it from the perspective of it being a last letter, you see how these words that are penned to Timothy, his friend and protege, um, that we'll get into in just a moment, uh, these are his final words. These are the words of a man who knows uh, worldly judgment is coming, and yet uh, eternal glory awaits him. And there is instructions that he wants to leave his dear friend and protege, Timothy. Um, and if you look at that Rembrandt, I said we were going to kind of go through it. I love this, this, this painting. As you see Paul there, uh, he is in prison. There are shackles on the far left-hand side, if you can see that. Uh, you can see the blood stains on his sleeves where he had either uh, been rubbed raw by those shackles or maybe even tortured. He's a man who looks tired. He does not look uh, youthful or energized. He looks contemplative. Uh, and yet there is a bright light shining through that dark prison cell. It's a light that, that points right to the word of God itself, right to the Bible. And you see Paul thinking, thinking about what he's going to write. Uh, and the sword there in the corners is a symbol of his pending execution, that this is Rembrandt's kind of depiction of that final prison sentence in Rome before his execution. So while it's not directly stated that that's a picture of Paul writing Second Timothy, uh, very likely you could see it as something like that. And this takes place then in a moment where Paul is acutely aware of just how much he is suffering and will suffer for the sake of the gospel. Now, where does this letter fall in the life of Timothy? Well, Timothy at this time is in Ephesus. Um, He is in in the throes of ministry, and what do I mean by that? As you'll see in this first chapter, he needs a little encouragement. Uh, He also needs a little bit of admonition to to keep going and keep keep pushing forward. And then where does this letter enter into our lives? One of the unique things about the pastoral epistles is kind of twofold, but it's two sides of the same coin. One, this is written to a specific person, right? This is not to just a, a church at large. This is written to... Timothy. Uh, I should say the other pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, and then, does anyone know the third one? Titus. Yeah, I heard a few people say Titus. And so those three letters are unique in the fact that they are written directly to an individual, and yet this does not mean that they uh, only speak to that individual. And so as we go through this book, one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what in Paul's writing here is specific to Timothy? You know, later on in the epistle, he tells him to grab a coat he left in Troas and grab some personal letters uh, to bring with him to Rome. That is not an instruction Paul gave to you. That is not an instruction Paul gave to me, right? Those sorts of instructions are specific to Timothy. But then the next question to ask is, what then is specific to the life of one called specifically into ministry? I said these are the pastoral epistles. They're named because those two men, Titus and Timothy, they are pastors of churches that Paul has helped plant, or at least strengthened if they were planted by someone else. And so there are going to be some things that 
perhaps are, are uniquely applicable to those who uh, are in a ministry or are called at what we would say called to be ordained ministers of the gospel. Uh, but then there's the, the third thing, which is what predominates over most of this letter, which is these are things that Paul says that are generically applicable to the Christian experience. So I don't want you to just dismiss everything because this is written to Timothy, or maybe you're not uh, studying to be a pastor, you're not planning to be a pastor, though there's always time if anyone wants a career change. Uh, But I don't want you to just dismiss some of these things as as just, well, that's for that situation. There much uh, of 2 Timothy is extremely applicable to the the general Christian experience, the experience that Timothy went through, the experience that I go through, the experience that you go through. And in that, there is a tremendous amount of godly wisdom in this letter, Uh, great reminders that we'll go through over the the course of the next four weeks. And the way this letter is sort of divided, it lends itself very naturally to having a four-week study. There's kind of four key things that Paul covers. The first, which we'll go through today, is this encouragement to not be ashamed, to have confidence and strength for the power of the gospel. The second is, what does it look like then to be one who is approved by God for, for not only ministry, but proclaiming this gospel as you go about your daily existence? Uh, the third kind of main theme of this in chapter 3 is the, what I would call the usefulness of Scripture. Uh, we will go through in, in a couple weeks that very famous verse that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for a whole laundry list of things that I'm not going to spoil, because in two weeks, um, your guys are going to go through it exhaustively. And then finally, it's the, the final instructions, truly the last words that, that Paul anticipates being able to pen. Uh, unsure if Timothy will ever be able to see him again. He wants Timothy to, in fact, he instructs him to, but we are not totally aware if Timothy actually made it to Paul before his execution. Um, so with all of that... I will open it up now real quick. Are there any questions or anything that I just said that you want a clarification on before we dive right into 2 Timothy chapter 1? Okay, very good. So it starts with a very familiar greeting. 2 Timothy 1 verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. You notice something that is probably familiar as we've gone through the Pauline epistles in this class uh, is that that introduction, that greeting. And something that is extremely common in the Pauline epistles is this uh, notion that it is by the will of God that Paul is an apostle. Um, In Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which he writes with Timothy, by the way, uh, which is a nice connection to this book. Uh, Romans, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy and Titus all begin with the same notion that I am an apostle, but I'm an apostle not because I'm so grand or so good or so talented or because I decided to go to the seminary, but I am an apostle by the will, by the power, according to the called purpose of God. And think about as we go through this first chapter today, how much you notice Paul taking off himself and ascribing and putting the glory and the really the... Uh, onus for the work onto God. That's something you're going to see, I think, probably close to half a dozen times in just this this first chapter. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Knocked my mic off. There we go. 
Um, another quick thing to note is he addresses Timothy as my child. This is not an unfamiliar way for the apostles to refer to uh, not only their fellow Christians, but specifically those to whom they are addressing. First John does this quite a bit. Beloved, my children. And here, very clearly, this is not saying my genetic father or my genetic son, but rather this is his child in the Lord. And he says as much in 1 Corinthians 4.17, talking about Timothy, referring to him specifically as my child in the Lord. Steve, did you have a question? My translation just says my, my dear son. Yeah, my dear son or beloved child, yeah, the one whom I care greatly about. Yeah. And so, uh, and then you'll notice something that probably sounds pretty familiar if you've ever listened to a sermon here, which is we uh, tend to use that same introduction before we begin our sermons, right? Grace, mercy, and peace be unto you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. But after the greeting, we really dive into the heart of what Paul wants to open this letter up with. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Uh, and one of the things I thought that's so interesting about this opening bit of Second Timothy here is that uh, Paul gives us just a brief insight. And what does it look like to actually keep someone in your prayers? You think about Paul, he's in prison. He's imprisoned, and uh, I guess the old adage is true, he has a lot of time on his hands. Right? And in addition to just writing and studying the scriptures, Paul is spending some of that time in prayer both day and night. And he is lifting up these churches uh, even as he faces his own uh, issues. And it it highlights not only his pastoral heart, but really, what again, this is where those three questions come into play. What does this show us about the general Christian experience? How many of us have have told someone, I'll keep you in my prayers, right? Well, what does that actually look like? Remembering to do so. And in this busy day and age, um, I think very quickly we can say something like, well, I'll remember you in your prayers, or I'll remember you in my prayers, I should say. Uh, and it can be very easy to just make that a, a platitude. It's a, a nice thing you say in a tough situation, right? But here Paul is very direct. say, in my remembrance of you in my prayers. In remembering you in my prayers. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. (laughs) So Timothy, this is where you're going to get that encouragement in this first chapter. Timothy, because of either Paul's imprisonment, because of his his own maybe pastoral struggles, maybe because of some of the conflict that we're going to see was uh, apparent with members of even people that they associated with. Members who used to, or people who used to be members of the, of the church who have either left or, or denied it. Um, Timothy's in a, in a bit of a rough spot. Right? And this is nothing new for someone who is serving the Lord. There are plenty of prophets who have very sincere and deep laments. Right? Uh, last week, if you remember my sermon, I even mentioned Moses at one point says, If this is how you're going to deal with me, if you love me at all, just kill me before you hand me over to these people. Uh, Paul understood this. There were people who opposed him at times. You're going to read in just a little bit. There were people he counted as friends. When the going got tough, they got going anywhere but where Paul was. There were those who, who treated him as one who was shameful because he had been arrested. 
Yeah, sure, it's great when things are going grand, we'll stand by you, but the second you're, you're put into prison, well, we're going to turn and run the other way. And so Paul addresses Timothy's own tears and saying that, I long to see that I might be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, or genuine faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I'm sure, dwells into you as well. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. And again, those three questions. What is specific to Timothy here? Lois, Eunice, right? But think about this in a deeper sense of what is the reminder here on the general Christian experience level. Think about those people who, from a young age, uh, instilled that faith into your heart. Who, who brought you up in the, in the fear and the admonition and the, and the love and respect, taught you who Jesus is, taught you about what it means to, to fear the Lord in a sense that is not um, just be afraid, but to revere and honor and respect him. Perhaps taught you, you know, to memorize your very first scripture verse. And I think it's telling that uh, Paul points Timothy back to that. I said in here when we're going through Luke, probably at the start of summer, I think there's something far deeper than we realize in Jesus' own phrase, whoever believes like a child. You you think about how uh, you're raised in the faith, the things that maybe you don't totally understand, but you sincerely believe like a child. And then as you grow up, one of the things that happens as you enter into your teenage years and adulthood, (laughs) you start to become a little bit of a skeptic. Right? Children aren't skeptical. Adults are extremely skeptical. And I don't think it's any accident here that Paul is pointing Timothy back to that that sincere faith he was instructed in from the time he was born. Uh, We read in Acts that Timothy joined Paul while they were in Lystra, that he grew up with a a Jewish mother but a a Greek father, that very likely this house was probably divided, and yet his mother and his grandmother made sure to raise him in faith, taught him the Old Testament, and then we're not sure exactly how, but at some point came and taught him about the good news of who Jesus is before Paul got to Lystra. And so from Lystra on, Timothy really is working hand in hand with Paul for much of the rest of Paul's ministry. And so I wanted us to pause for a moment and just think about who you would fill in if Paul is writing this letter to you. Who would those maybe two or three or four or five uh, individuals be that you could say, Paul, you could remind me of how they brought me up in the faith. And remember them with gratitude for just a moment. So easily we go through our daily lives and and forget to thank the people that have got us to where we are. Um, And we're all in different spots, right? We've got some going into high school, some at an age of wisdom, we'll just call it, right? Some that are mothers, some that are newly married, um, and yet all of us have at some point had people that we could fill in those blanks with. If you took Lois and Eunice out and, and entered into those names uh, and remembering to be grateful for them and how they impacted you and, and brought that, that love and the faith and the Holy Spirit into your life. But moving on to verse 6, we read, For this reason, Paul says, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you 
through the laying on of my hands. Now, this phrase right here, I think, is really, really interesting. And this is where those three questions, those three questions come into play once more. What is specific to to Timothy here? This fanning into flame the gift that is from God, which is in you uh, through the laying on of my hands. Yes. The apostolic, yes, exactly. That literally, Paul was there when they, they, they ordained Timothy into, into this ministry. All right? Now, what about this phrase, these two verses, is unique to those going into the ministry? Anyone's been to an ordination? We had the a joy about a month ago to be at Chris Hill's ordination at Salem-Afton. And one of the things we did was the laying on of hands. Right? That we still continue this to this day. But now I want you to think of one, again, that third question, one more thing, which is, in what way does this apply to the general Christian experience? And in fact, if you were at 8 o'clock, you should get this. If you've not heard the sermon yet, we did not plan this, but this gets mentioned specifically in the sermon today. Baptism. That all of us have had this gift from God laid upon us through hands. That is God at work. Just like the laying on of hands is not Paul saying, my hands have this power to do this, but it's a gift from God. The way we describe it when we're teaching confirmation is that God baptizes through the hands of his servants. And that is a a general Christian experience. In fact, if you go into our hymnal and go to the back cover of the hymnal, there's the rite of emergency baptism. And guess what? Step one is not, is not, go find a pastor because he's the only one that can do it. Right? No. Any Christian has that authority. Now, the reason why we have pastors do it is that this is the the public office of the ministry that very clearly... um, You all know what I stood up and said, this is what I believe and what I am committed to teaching and preaching and administrating in your midst. So that's why we often, in most cases, 98% of the time, 99 probably, there's a pastor that does the baptism. But this gift is not um, because pastors are so grand. It's a gift from God, which is why in an emergency, truly any Christian can baptize. If you've not looked at that, I would encourage you, when you, if you go over to the sanctuary or if you're going to be in Livingstone this morning, next time you're over in the sanctuary, just pull up, grab a hymnal, and it's the back cover. Um, well, I should say the back cover is the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. It's the first page beyond the back cover. And, and read through uh, that right and see what it says about the, the true power that God bestows upon the Christian to bring someone into that family of faith. Um, it's kind of a, a neat thing to think about, something maybe we don't always spend enough time remembering. Uh, but then the second part of this, so we kind of talked about how it applies using those three questions. second part of this is what does it mean to uh, fan into flame the gift of God? Uh, the literal Greek is to uh, essentially relight up so rekindle is sometimes used. You may have a, a translation that says rekindle. That, that's a pretty good translation. 
the, the root word here literally means just to, to start up or, or light up a fire specifically. Um, and so the, there's a little prefix before that just means again. To relight up that fire that is in within you. What do you think that means to, to rekindle that or to fan it into flame? Staying, staying in the word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Yeah, did, did not our hearts burn within us? Yeah. Um, I think this is a really interesting word because the only, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, I should say. And when it's used in the Septuagint, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was used in that um, Septuagint, it is in two instances. Once uh, in, ter- in Second Kings with uh, Elijah bringing someone back to life, restoring them, re- uh, uh, reviving them. And the second um, is in the account of Joseph, that when the brothers bring back news of where Joseph is, their father's heart is re-lightened re-engulfed in, in a spirit, almost, that, again, that revival. And, and so you have this kind of understanding of this is much more than just, you know, be on fire, quote-unquote, but really reignite the heart of one's life, the heart of one's spirit. And I began to think about it, about what that means for us. And one of the first things it means, what, if you have to rekindle something, what, what does that inherently mean? It went out, yeah, or at least it, it might be burning, but it's, you know, it, we've all done this, or maybe you haven't, but I have. You've got a fire, and it starts to get low, uh, and, and you take some lighter fluid, and you just give it a little squirm. Poof. Yeah, yeah. I'm not recommending that. I probably need to issue some sort of safety disclaimer before I say something like that. But you've all been around a campfire where, you know, it starts to go out. That fire starts to go out, and the easiest way to reignite it may not be the safest way, but is to take that lighter fluid and give it a little spritz and let it, you know, um, But you're absolutely right, Jim, that, that in order for something to be rekindled, it had to have not only been there, but then been diminished. Now, that's not saying that, that Timothy doesn't have faith. I want to be clear here. But as I mentioned at the start, he, he's going through a little bit of the, the throes of ministry, not only in his probably relationship with that church, but mentor, Paul. His good friend is essentially on death row, is imprisoned, has been betrayed by people they trusted, that they traveled with, has suffered greatly. Uh, And I can't imagine, it didn't probably cross Timothy's mind at at some point in the the back, at least, if he goes through that, what am I going to go through? By the time this is all said, and done. And so I don't think it is too much to say that Paul recognizes, rightfully so, that there are moments, and ask any pastor and they'll tell you this, there are moments where it can be uh, tough to feel like that fire is burning, right? Doesn't mean it's gone, just means there's tougher moments. And then we also go through this as Christians. You all know what it's like when, when you're really into, into the Bible, a Bible study, or there's something that you're, you're just fired up about, uh, pun intended there. Right? And then you also know what it's like when, you know, maybe you wake up, your alarm goes off at, at 6.45 to go to an 8 o'clock service, and you've you got to admit, uh, it'd be nice to sleep in just a little, wouldn't it? 
I guess I've got to go do this. I guess it's a little bit, you know, my obligation. It, and don't get me wrong, please still come on those days. <laughs> but there are those moments where, where our faith almost can seem more of like a duty than a delight. And, and we need that same prayer that, that Paul gives to Timothy to God rekindle that fire, rekindle that passion, revive that spirit. That I may be filled, you know, with that joy and that love for one another, the love for serving you. And the worst thing you can do in something like that is pretend like it's not. Don't don't pretend like you're on fire, right? Uh, and I think that's the other thing is we can we can pretend like, well, I got to be a, this sort of attitude if I come to church. And sure, you may be kind of dreading it on the way in, but you get there and it's just happy go lucky and what a great. You know, be honest about your own spiritual. Pray that to God. If Timothy needed it, that reminder, Paul talks about it several times, needing that sort of same reminder. Uh, who are we to think that we're not going to need that sort of that prayer and that help from the Holy Spirit in, in seasons and, and different stages of life? Yes, bud. And I'm going to give you the handheld before I get in trouble. Uh, looking ahead to the uh, fall, uh, Uh, so you, the, that's a great question. Going ahead, does Paul, I don't know if I turned it on. So I, at least I gave you the mic, but I didn't turn it on, which turns out to be in, an ineffective way to get it onto the radio. Uh, <laughs> but the question was, for those that uh, were not able to hear it, uh, does Paul give him a direct instruction, you know, in order to fan the flame, do X, Y, and Z? Or is that something that we have to make an inference to later on, or even just looking at other scriptures? And I think the answer is yes. There are going to be some things that he, he talks about in the next couple verses uh, including, you know, uh, being joyful even in sharing the suffering that, that Paul is going through. Um, but there's not a formulaic, all right, when you get into those moments, here's X, Y, and Z. Now, there are certain things that I think you, you uh, can bet are pretty good ways to, to help you with that. And the first one I already mentioned, uh, take it to God, right? Take it to God. Have that honest prayer, Lord, I... I mean, I've definitely said it. Lord, I'm, I'm just not feeling it today. Can you, can you please, uh, can you please reinstill that, that bit of passion, that, that joy, that, that spark, right? Again, pun in, intended. Um, but then also, uh, we see time and time again throughout Scripture, and this is a perfect example of that. God doesn't just give us ourselves to pray with God, but he gives us our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, that's what Paul's doing in, in this letter. Him telling uh, Timothy this reminder, him telling him, he starts out by saying, I'm remembering you in my prayers day and night. Right? Um, so prayer would be, would be, I think, the very first thing. The second thing is, and this is, again, probably the Sunday school answer, be in the Word. Right? It's amazing to me how many times I've looked at something a hundred times and maybe never caught something, and then you look at it the 101st time, and it says, you realize it is more profound than you ever gave it credit for, and not only that, it spoke to exactly what you needed to hear in that moment, right? Um, I'm reminded of that any time. Uh, I, I preached once on Psalm 55:22, which is you know, essentially, cast your cares on God because he cares for you. He will not let the righteous be moved. It's what Peter quotes when he says, cast your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Right? And it just so happened that day, 
that I preached on, this was back on Vicarage, I thought I had everything lined up just perfectly. It was a, a weekend where uh, former Pastor Thompson and Pastor Thomas were both away at family weddings. So it was the only time on Vicarage they ever let me uh, ha- have the place to myself, so to speak. And I thought I had everything planned out weeks in advance, and something <laughs> went haywire right before the 9.30 service. And I remember thinking, well, that's timely. Cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Because uh, all of a sudden now I have a great care I didn't realize I was going to have about 30 seconds ago. Uh, that's the sort of thing where it's, you never know how God's word is going to speak to you, but stay in it. Psalm 1 talks about it. Blesses the one who delights in the word of the Lord day and night. Uh, if this is the only time each week, this and, and our Sunday service that you spend in the word, I'm going instru- to give you a kind but firm instruction do it more, right? Do it daily. And the beauty of technology these days is there are a whole host of ways to do that from your phone. Amazon can have you a great devotion here in two days. Um, there is really no excuse to say, I guess I can't really spend that time in the, the Word today. All right, Steve, did you have a question? Most of us go through phases in our life. Yeah. Where the flame dies down. Yes. And then we live our life through that, and then all of a sudden, we get reignited, just like you're talking about. Yeah. And it certainly happened to me. Well, and it's, it, this is where I would say this is a universal Christian experience, right? I mean, I, I won't ask for a show of hands, but can anyone say they, they haven't gone through something like that, where they needed a little bit of rekindling? Um, if you haven't, please do come talk to me after, because I, <laughs> I want to find out how you, how you do it. Uh, but this is where I, I think the beauty of these pastoral epistles, and especially Second Timothy here, is, is you see the multifaceted, uh, profound nature of the way the Word of God speaks to us. That this spoke to Tim- Timothy some 2,000 years ago. Uh, it speaks to pastors, certainly, but it so too speaks to uh, every Christian, the general Christian, universal Christian experience. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. And that word fear, I don't know if fear is the best translation. Um, It is literally um, a spirit of cowardice or even, I would say, timidity. And it doesn't flow as well to say God gave us a spirit, not of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. And cowardice is probably too strong, so I don't love that either, but... It's this idea of being basically not a spirit that is not bold, right? And the three things that, they, that he lists in contrast are supposed to be seen as bold, right? Power, love, and self-control, right? Uh, you notice it's not power, love, and domineering, but what's one of the, the third thing that he lists that is a bold attribute of the Christian life? Self-control, right? Think about that for a moment. Uh, how, how, how poor we do at that one. Uh, especially when the world says, yeah, you have every right to be angry. Go get your pound of flesh. The bold thing to do in that moment is to have the power of his love, to have self-control. So I'm going to stop, pause for just a second. Are there any questions on the first seven verses or so of Second Timothy? All right, we're going to move on then starting at verse 8. 
Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. You're going to see later on in just this first chapter, Paul lists some of the folks who uh, at least seem to be on his side, and then when he was in prison, have now found themselves ashamed of being associated with him. And we don't know if that is uh, for social reasons, for economical reasons, or maybe even um, for their own gain or position within, a, within the church, so to speak. But the bottom line is Paul has experienced something that David went through, times Moses went through. Again, uh, very universal to at least a Christian leadership experience, which is when the going gets tough, uh, it, those people who stick by you are, are few and far between. Now, that's not to say that it's easy. I, I often am grateful I'm not put in that, that position. Uh, we are reminded it, when reading letters like this where a Paul, essentially a minister of the gospel, is awaiting execution simply for preaching the gospel. We are blessed to be in a position in this country where we don't have any fear sitting here in Bible study today. You know, it, it's easy for us to look at this and say, well, yeah, Timothy, why were you fearful? You're supposed to be bold in the Lord. Well, it's a lot... A lot easier to be fearful when, when pastors are getting round, rounded up and, and put into prison, even sentenced to execution for being pastors. Right? Uh, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in, the, in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who, call, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. And now I'm going to circle back all the way back to verse 1. Just count how many times Paul credits what's going on as being the gift of God, from God, uh, by the strength of God, for the sake of God, to the purpose of God. Who is the one at work in these 10 verses? Or who does Paul say is, is adamantly at work? God. And I think that's a, a great reminder because so easily we turn these things, we turn even... Church activities are our, our faith into an anthrocentric sort of faith, a man-centered sort of faith. And time and time again in this epistle, Paul goes back to the giver of all things is God. That is, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ, that he's an apostle, that um, your sincere faith dwells in you, from God, and so to fan into flame that, that gift that God gave to you. God gives us a spirit, not of that timidity or fear, but of, of love and power and self-control. And even the suffering is by the power of God. That call to share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. Uh, and I was reminded in, in reading this of a, another time, Paul kind of makes the same sort of sentiment, but this time in just two verses, pretty well-known verses from one of his other epistles, where he talks a great deal about not being ashamed or fearful or timid. In Romans 1, he says very clearly, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believed. Uh, we read that, we use it as, as confirmation verses, we, we use it, um, rightfully so, by the way, I want to make sure I'm clear, it's a wonderful verse, but sometimes we forget what does it truly look like to be unashamed about the gospel. It's not just having a, a what would Jesus do 
band on, right? Not putting a Joy FM sticker on the back of your car. You can do all those things. That's fine and dandy. But to truly not be ashamed of the gospel is even in the face of persecution and suffering, um, torment, even death itself, you say this is the, the gospel proclamation of who God is in this world, how he's worked, and what that means for you and I. Yes, Josh, and I will get the mic on over. And I turned it on. Well, I think there's an interesting observation here, too, that Paul is implicitly saying that to be ashamed of the gospel is actually a natural response of our sinful nature. Right? That we should be ashamed of it because it is, you know, by worldly standards, foolish. It is rejecting the uh, elevation of ourselves. You know, I think that's kind of interesting. You know, that, that's kind of the natural response is to want to be ashamed of it, even if you believe it. You kind of want to keep that, uh, that light under a bushel, right? Yeah, yeah. I think you've, you've hit a nail right on the head. And think about how the world expects one to act. What's the way the world expects people uh, to act. One of the ways is not going down with the seemingly sinking ship. I'm not saying the church is a sinking ship, but when its leaders are getting put into prison or or awaiting execution, it doesn't look all that appealing, right? You're right about what you said about it's not about elevating yourself, it's actually about humbling yourself. Uh, Where where else in this world does that naturally occur? Where does that naturally occur? It, It doesn't. We're constantly being told we should, should look out for number one, try and get what's yours, um, you know, act now while the iron's hot and make sure you get what you deserve. And so, yeah, very naturally, we almost should be, in a sinful sense, a human sense, ashamed of that gospel. All right, did I see a hand over in... Nope. Okay. All right. All uh, right. Moving on then, continuing with verse 10. Uh, Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher which is why I suffer as I do. I, and, and again, I am struck by the fact that when you realize this is Paul's last, last letter, these aren't platitudes. These aren't things that he's just saying while you know, he, he's young and vibrant and things are going well, but he is making this confession. He's reminding Timothy of this confession as he is confronted with the very reality of his own earthly death. That it is Jesus Christ, the manifestation of the grace that he gave to us before the ages began, that abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And once more, he says, for I was appointed, a.k.a. by the will of God, called not because of me, but because of him. Called because of God, I was appointed as a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. So I'm going to go back to those three questions again when we, we read that phrase. I was appointed as a uh, preacher, apostle, and teacher. 
Now, in one sense, is he writing this in a, in a very specific context? Well, what's, which one of these does not apply to anyone in this room? Apostle, yes, I heard it. Right? One sent, literally, by Christ himself. Unless, again, any of you have had a road to Damascus experience, in which case I would also, once again, like to talk to you after the Bible study to find out what that was like. Right? But I think I can safely assume that has not happened to anyone in here. And so uh, we have not been appointed as an apostle. All right? Now, and here at St. Paul's we have a few more of these than maybe at a, a typical congregation because of the number uh, who ha- work at the IC or Lutheran Hour or the seminary. But how many of us does the phrase preacher apply to? Okay. Now I got one in the back. All right. Um, got myself. There's Timothy, right? Pastor Thomas, Pastor Thompson. But now let's look at this as a third one. Yeah, Randy. Hmm. So here, this is a proclaimer. Um, and specifically, I, I would say in the sense of from the office of, of ministry. Right? That this is what uh, Timothy has been called into, to be a, a preacher in Ephesus. Right? But now the last one is teacher. And I will say, to some respect, all of us have called to proclaim the good news, right? Um, but in the sense of the, the, the office of the keys and the ordained ministry, the, um, you know, the administering the sacraments, proclaiming the word, that's where I would see that. And then the third category of teacher, though, uh, who does that apply to? Of whole, I think all of us, right? And this is, again, who does he reference as the teacher's of Timothy, mother and grandmother, right? Uh, and why I highlight this is because, yes, not everyone is called necessarily to teach in our school. We're starting school back up on Tuesday. We have wonderful, wonderful teachers. I'm so glad that God has called them into that, um, especially as you get towards those younger grades. I am so glad God has called them <laughs> into that. Uh, I love getting to go in for 30 minutes. It's like a burst of energy, but how they sustain that for nine months out of the year, I truly do not know. Uh, I was a kindergarten teacher. Better buy stock in Advil now. Um, And not all of us have been called necessarily to teach or lead a a Bible study here at church or maybe even in, in a small group. But one of the things that I think we maybe discount is how much impact we can have to those people in our life, Um, that very truly each and every day we have opportunities to to teach about the love of Jesus, the the care of Jesus, the mercy of Jesus, the grace of Jesus to a whole host of individuals in our life, some of whom we probably don't even realize at times, actually most of whom we probably don't even realize at times. And so one of the the reminders that I I was given as I was going through uh, 2 Timothy here is part of this opening chapter is Paul's admonition or encouragement or you know, calling Timothy to remember, uh, you can't say you have no impact. That even if you suffer, even if you struggle, even if, if that, that flame might be embers at the moment, even if you're crying, he mentions his tears in the first uh, few verses, even as I suffer, don't think you don't have an impact. Don't think that you can't be um, 
someone who teaches about the gospel. And then verse 12, which is why I suffer as I do. And then I love this right away. But I am not ashamed. You know, if there was a theme of, of what these, this first chapter is all about, it, it's that reminder that this is not something to be ashamed about even when you suffer for it. And I go back to that, that, that Rembrandt, and you know, Paul is, is beaten down, is tired. But do you know where his foot is? Do you notice this? I always think this is one of the most fascinating parts about it. If you look, he's got one shoe on, but he's got one shoe off. And that, that foot that is free is rested upon something. That? A rock. And who is the, the, the rock? Who is the sure foundation? Jesus. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even see that. Thank you, Lance. On the back here, one of the banners says, On Christ the solid rock I stand. There, boom. You can look at this or you can look at that, but I think the point uh, is well taken that Paul, even as he's suffering, is still standing on that rock. Even when he's brought low, he's still going to keep his foot on that rock. All right. Yes, Will. I just, I just wonder if you could... Does the Greek have a, a more full explanation of what ashamed means? Um, so this is what's really interesting. So I'll say... The word ashamed, I want to see if I wrote it down. Uh, I did not, but I did look at this in the BDAG, which is the Greek uh, lexicon dictionary. It gives you a little bit more context, more reference. Uh, it means to be put into a state where uh, you are losing something by being in that state. Now, that's a really, really long way to say ashamed. Right? What, does, what does shame actually mean? Think about it when, when you've had... When you've been ashamed or something. It doesn't just mean to be embarrassed, right? It means that, that you have been confronted with a state that has caused you to lose something, and usually that might be standing or um, well-being um, or maybe our, our own sensibilities. But it, it's this idea of uh, to be ashamed is to stand in this this place where essentially you're, you're directly aware of how much you're losing by standing in this, this spot, by holding this position. Um, and the inference is not that you stand strong. I want to be clear here. That's, so the, the reverse of it is to be unashamed. So the reverse of it is to be in that same position, but stand strong. So you're faced with that loss. You're faced with that, that um, struggle. You're faced with that retribution whatever it may be, and you don't cower. That's why cowardice is one of the, the uh, I think one of the options that some translations use for that word fear, because the sense of not being ashamed is uh, to have a, a lack of cowardice in the face of your own suffering and loss. And I, <clears throat> I'm, I'm wondering why he stresses he is also an apostle, and he stresses the importance that all preachers should also be good teachers. Yes. Yeah. I mean, to, ha to know is one thing. To be able to convey it yes. is another. It, that's a great point. To know is one thing, but to convey it is another. Uh, the best message in the world can get lost if you don't know how to communicate, right? Um, that's why it's a good thing we do things like instruct people on uh, not only how to preach on, on a Sunday morning, but 
how to teach and, and how to connect. And, and different people have different natural gifts. I mean, he talks about that in a you know, dozen different places. Um, that's actually our school theme for this year, that you know, we're all connected in Christ. You're members of one body. And in that 1 Corinthians 12 section, uh, that whole thing is some are this, some are that. You know, not, some people are eyes, some people are noses, some people are ears, and the ear can't say to the, the mouth, essentially, I have no use for you, right? But you're all one body. And so there are some people that have different natural gifts or abilities and, and whatnot, but there is a great importance on uh, if you are going to preach about this, <laughs> communicate it well. And study. Yeah, and study. And, and it is a combination because of both knowledge, but then communication because someone could be a great communicator we all know people who are great communicators um you know think about a motivational speaker those people are really good to listen to you you can listen to them for 15 minutes and it feels like it's been 30 seconds right because they're great communicators Uh, being a great communicator itself is not the point he's making but like you said it's the knowledge combined with that communication now that's a very good observation Now I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people think I need to work on communication skills and teaching inability. No. Um, but continuing with the, towards the end of chapter one, uh, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Uh, one of the things I think is really interesting in the Greek here is sound words. Sound words isn't bad, but it's, it's literally speaking healthy words. And you think about that when it comes to the proclamation of the gospel. There are ways to, to proclaim the gospel that are healthy and unhealthy. Right? There have been plenty of people who have twisted things in Scripture to say them in a pattern a way that is unhealthy. And that's a little bit of what's happening in Ephesus. Think back to, to Corinth. Think back to all those examples that, that Paul has to list throughout the Pauline epistles of like, someone is saying it like this. I mean, look at Galatians. The whole thing of, of Galatians are people twisting the, the pattern of the words of the gospel. Right? That is the, the whole reason he writes Galatians. But follow that, that pattern of healthy words that you have heard from me and the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. And something you just mentioned about what, um, you, I, that I didn't address was when he had said, you know, I'm an apostle. Why does he keep mentioning the word apostle? Well, that is the uh, statement of, of authority, that this isn't my own teaching, but I have been sent from Jesus. Okay? That Jesus sent out, and, and Jesus says this in, in Acts, go, go read Acts Eight, read the road to Damascus. Read how Jesus tells Ananias, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Uh, and here we see Paul on the final leg of that suffering. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. <laughs> so if you think about it for a moment, how is Paul saying... Or in what way is Paul saying we should treat the gospel that is entrusted to us? What do you guard? Maybe it's another question to ask. Treasure. Something valuable, something dear, right? 
That's why I'm, I'm hoping you lock your car, right? Because it's not a, you know, anyone who wants to use it can. Why? Because it's something you need. Um, he reminds Timothy to treat the gospel in the exact same way, to guard it as a good deposit, a treasure that has been entrusted to you. And then he gets into what he's been alluding to kind of from the, from the offset. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy on the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Now, here's one of the things that I think is very interesting, and this is where we're going to close on, and it shows where, you know, you sometimes wish, could you add in more context? And what were I, did I say at the start? This whole book, you're going to have to ask yourself three questions. So this is one of those ones that falls directly under, um, probably Timothy understood it, but it's not necessarily for us to understand. And that's the last individual. So he said, all in Asia have left me. Uh, Phygelus, or Phygelus, couldn't have been Pat. No, it had to be Phygelius. And Hermogenes specifically left him. But then we get into this Onesiphorus. Uh, and you notice, it seems like he's also left, but then what does Paul pray? That his family would have mercy, but that he earnestly found him when he was in Rome, and you know well all the service he rendered at Ephesus. It's one of the, the strangest, I think, little two verses, because it seems at the start to say, like, he's grouped in with the, the people that abandoned Paul. But then the back half of it seems to kind of indicate, well, perhaps maybe he left Asia because these other folks were abandoning Paul and went and found Paul and, and returned to him. So the church has actually traditionally viewed him as uh, a saint. Um, but there is some ambiguity, and this is where, again, I don't think it's necessarily for us to totally figure out. But I just thought that was interesting because when you first read it, at first glance, it may seem like he's grouped in with the folks that abandoned Paul. But if you Google Onesiphorus, you'll see that he has a feast day or a festival day. And you're like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> how, does that, how does that work? Well, that back half of the, those little two verses, or th- three verses, seem to indicate that when he found Paul, he, he didn't do so in a way that had abandoned him or twisted the gospel, but actually came in support and perhaps in defense of Paul. Uh, so with all that being said, are there any questions on 2 Timothy chapter 1 before we wrap up for today? No? Then, all right, we'll close with prayer. And I should mention, if any of you, I know uh, many of you are going to 1045, but if you came to the 8 o'clock service and you're about to head home, I would encourage you to come back at noon. We have a wonderful back-to-school bash. It's for all. It's not just for our school families, but just a little way to, to celebrate as a congregation and as a church family before the kids, I'm sure, excitedly get back, uh, get back to school this Tuesday. And we will certainly remember our teachers, our many wonderful teachers in our prayers as they prepare for the start of a new school year. Uh, Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you grateful for this good deposit, the gospel of Jesus Christ that you entrusted to us. I pray that you would guide and bless all those who are about to hear about that good news this year at our school, that you'd be with the teachers who who lead them each and every day, that you'd allow us as a congregation to support that, that faith formation at an early age. 
that you'd give us the, the strength to be unashamed of the gospel, even when this world says it is something to be ashamed of. And that, like Timothy, like Paul, we would continue proclaiming that gospel until the day we are called into your near presence. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.